listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. I'm your co-host, Rich, and your other co-host, Mr. Henry Salmon, is with me. How are you doing, sir? Yes, I am very well. Thanks, Rich. Always very well when I get to chat about music. So life is is good, and I'm really looking forward to this, this chat. How are you doing? I am a little bit nervous for one of these for the first time in a while because of who we picked for this. Yeah, I had the wobbles over the Beach Boys. I just <laughs> couldn't couldn't not do that properly. And you decided to pick this album and you've gone for a, a bit of a stonker. What have you chosen? I have picked Radiohead's game-changing, controversial masterpiece pretentious load of nonsense who knows it's kid a and amnesiac because it was all recorded in one big session and i thought we should probably do it justice because it's it's a turning point for them as as a band and it is a brilliant brilliant album and a lot of people don't like it and so we should talk about it yeah there's so much commentary on this if you look at the reviews and the the critics response when this came out it's kind of polarizing and if you look at like the top 10 <laughs> albums and people rank Radiohead albums a lot on on the internet this one is it's often number one and sometimes it's right at the bottom and people are just can never really place it so yep. you picked a you picked a super interesting one well it's one of those intriguing albums purely from a from a time point of when it was recorded so Radiohead were off the back of OK Computer massively successful critically acclaimed sold huge amounts of of the of that album worldwide lots and lots of touring probably too much touring it's that point where it a band is so successful and how do you follow up on that success is always a big question mark there are not many bands that have released an album that big and then released a successful follow-up yeah, and l- let's get into that. Rather than going back through the band, because we've done this on the OK Computer podcast, so let's skip over who they are and what they did with OK Computer, and I guess almost rejoin the story after that being a huge critical success. And I think it's that changed the game in its in its own right. So bring us right up to the start of, I guess, the end of OK Computer and the start of their recording for this album. Well, I think that. The one thing that Radiohead fans who love the Benz and love OK Computer, who complain that Kid A should have been more like those albums, need to realise is that Radiohead nearly broke up at the tail end of touring Kid A and the start of recording this album because they just couldn't face creating more of the same kind of music. They needed something different. There was so much pressure. York was suffering with it. He was struggling with his mental health. He was struggling with depression. He basically said in the process of writing the next album, he was discovering that he'd lost all confidence in himself. Yeah. And you watch interviews of him at that time, and he tends to be the one that's interviewed. It's often him, either it's the band, but he's the focus, or it's him by himself. He looks like a broken man. There was one interview where the interviewer talks about a bit about OK Computer and he says, well, obviously I can't listen to it. And they're like, what do you mean you can't listen to it? Other than listening to it to try and get back into the headspace of the music, he can't listen to it. Yeah. And it's because it reminds him of the really dark place he was in at the time they were recording OK Computer, which we talked about in a previous episode. Exactly. So I'm not going to go into here. But... Basically, they had that point where they needed something different. They needed to do something different. All of the band had ideas about what they needed to do. Tom York just wanted to get a massive eraser out and start again. He was having writer's block. He was thinking, is this all I've got? I I don't know that I've got anything new and inventive and different to, to take us forward. Nigel Goodrich, who, as we've mentioned before, is considered the, the extra fifth member of Radiohead, didn't want to change what he saw as a winning formula. So even though the band were fed up with it, he was seeing it more from a kind of 
how can we be successful again with the next album perspective so he was sort of on the record company side a little bit on that one ed o'brien after kid a had been released talked about how once you've become comfortable in something you feel like you've had it sussed that's when you start making shit records and he'd wanted to go back to radiohead's roots and almost be doing three minute guitar songs like they were doing more like almost pablo honey type stuff and just completely tear it all down and start again but they all had these kind of different views of where to go and there were points where as a band they were feeling like we we can't we can't come to a an agreement on how we want to move forward so should we even do that at all well think about you know o'brien's a guitarist right and Mm -hmm. imagine being told by the rest of the band, we're not going to have any guitars on this album. I mean, how, how must that feel? Like you're, you're, that's your, well, the place in the old band was you hold a guitar or on, on the drums, the, the drums are a constant thing in the album and there are no drums on Kid A really, apart from the live, the live setup. That's an interesting angle as well. And you make a good point, but at the same time, that stuff is woven into these, these songs. So there is still, there are beats drumming and guitar in there it's just done in a different way and often it's supplemented by more electronica so drum machines but with drumming alongside it york was desperate to move away from anything he considered to be like classical rock cliches which i sort of think they did already with okay computer there's stuff on there that definitely isn't what you'd consider standard rock but he was listening to kraut rock he was listening to more jazz and experimental electronica so charles mingus miles davis alice coltrane bjork the talking heads were all things he was listening to and thinking this is where i want to go but the rest of the band weren't necessarily going that way i mean he bought the entire back catalogue for Warp Records, which is an electronic <laughs> music label, wow. that were putting out music by Aphex Twin and Oteca and uh, and Boards of Canada. So there's a lot of what people would consider very non-mainstream, very left-field music that's inspiring him. But it's almost this feeling of he knows what he wants to get to, but he he can't work out how to get himself there and he really doesn't know how to drag his bandmates along with him. That's a, a brilliant way to put it because everything I've read and when you listen to it um, and you hear interviews with him afterwards, he's got this kind of, you're right, he's got a target. He doesn't know how to get there, but he almost has to completely dismantle what you think of as Radiohead the band and rebuild it into, this is this is Radiohead, and, uh, you know, there's, an interesting quote from him saying he completely had it with with melody he just wanted rhythm you know he 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 wants just uh and i think that that change in in style just f- spooked out a lot of radiohead fans including me oh absolutely but we'll come on to that yeah definitely there was absolutely a backlash and i think a backlash that still continues there are still radiohead fans I mean, we're more than 20 years on from Kid A's release. It came out in 2000, who still are angry that they didn't do another The Bends. Yeah, and just to, for people who are listening who, who don't know this, just in terms of musical style, I guess as a kind of compare and contrast, you've got an OK Computer, which is proto-guitar rock, and it's a clear indie sound through the whole thing. This record is absolutely not that Mm -hmm. there's technology woven throughout the whole thing the melodies as you know we mentioned earlier have kind of gone and in its place is just a very my first word i thought of when i was thinking about this was just inaccessible and to start with this album is is tough and i think if a listener was to just put it on who didn't know it it's it's tough to get through i think i agree with you and it's an album that needs a lot of listens to really understand it and i wonder whether part of that was down to how it was recorded and put together in the first place because they were really struggling with what to even do they had the initial recording sessions in paris and copenhagen which were disastrous so songs would get out of the blocks and then they go nowhere York was bringing in demos inspired by 
you know, those electronic inspirations that he'd found, but they were falling very flat with the group who couldn't see how they could be molded into a rock song, basically, which was what they were expecting. Colin Greenwood later admitted that he was worried that they were being led, and I quote, into some awful art rock nonsense just for its own sake, so that it looks like you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, which is fascinating because that's exactly what they got accused of yeah. by a lot of the mainstream music media. 100%, yeah. And then off the back of that, they did more sessions in Gloucestershire, but were still basically not happy with anything. And Tom said about this, unfortunately, we had no plot. We had 50 things on a blackboard and we just kept throwing them out and adding more. We kept driving everyone crazy. Let's start this one today, but we've got these other 50 fucking things to work on. It frees you up in a way. You don't know what's going to happen when you go into the studio every day. So it's sort of, like we've said, it's this thing of you've got so many different things going on and you've got this idea about how you might go ahead but you don't know how to get there i mean knives out on amnesiac apparently that took 313 hours of studio time to record what which is bonkers that is mad yeah and and it's it's like idiotech i guess is another one which had was it 50 minutes of sample that greenwood created and tom you listened to, to the whole thing and in there was a kind of little 30 second piece of sample he's like that's what i want and the rest of the 50 minutes is like that's all a piece of shit (laughs) and and this is the thing greenwood and york were often just dicking around with stuff and trying to work it out i mean there's a great quote from york you should see johnny's gear man he's got all this patch cord gear he gets the most amazing sounds and he's only read the first 20 pages of the manual he's got another 200 to go he keeps going you know it can do more than this it's incredible, isn't it? And and I think out of all of them, Greenwood was released a little bit more than everyone else. And so he's he's classically trained. He's trained in strings. He knows how to. I mean, he he puts orchestral pieces together now. He he knows his onions. And I think when it started to become apparent that he was completely free to just, as you say, dick around. Um, I'm sure there's a more uh, professional way to <laughs> to explain that. But he really did start to dick around with all sorts of. Um, instruments and you, you mentioned that totally failed trip to paris mm-hmm. it wasn't a total failure because when he was there he went to a music store and found an on martino which is a a kind of bonkers piece of yeah, what is it it's a bit like a theremin if, if you don't know a theremin it's this kind of almost spectral sounding instrument the kind of woo Original Star Trek intro music. Everyone who will recognise that is playing the theremin. Yeah, exactly. And these machines are totally wacky, but he he found one. And there's a wonderful interview, uh, which I saw. Them. You, you never see him speak, ever. But I saw an interview where he was talking about On Martin because he was so excited about it. And he says he loves it because he can't sing. So the On Martino is almost his voice. The the Omartino replaces a voice and he says there's nothing closer to a, in his eyes, a, to a human voice than this machine. And so if you've ever been to a Radiohead gig and he's, you watch him leaning over a little kind of, it's like a shrunken little keyboard and he's playing the keys with one hand, which aren't actually keys, they're, they're hooked up to a wire, which in the original Omartino you'd use a a ring connected to the wire to slide your finger up and down the, the, the wire to make a sound. He's creating this music on this this funny little keyboard. And with his other hand, there's a, a whole box of tricks to change your pitch and tone and everything else, uh, which he's playing with as well. It's mad the amount of modular synths and all that kind of stuff going on and pedals and things that he has in front of him at, at the average Radiohead gig. I, just, I think he has probably 90% of the gear in his sort of area. Yeah, well, well I remember watching them pre-Kid A and he was still doing all that stuff but with just pedals and pedals and pedals for his guitars mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know someone must have got a, a brilliant car boot sale job lot of guitar pedals when he he's decided to switch direction and go into uh, <laughs> go into this stuff I still think he has a lot of those because he'll still do things with those pedals as well like he's, he's dicking around with all sorts of stuff at, at any given gig that they're playing yeah and it reminds me of a fantastic quote. I remember years ago digging through some of my brother's old magazines 
he got a load of old music magazines and one of them had a Radiohead interview and it was from post Pablo Honey pre the Benz or maybe just pre the Benz. Tom York still had the bleach blonde hair thing going on at that point in time, if you remember that. And there's a brilliant quote from Johnny Greenwood along the lines of, yeah, I don't really see the point in like pedals and all that kind of stuff. We just want to play guitars and like enjoy those sounds, man. Wow. That, <laughs> like, that, that hasn't changed. aged well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What happened to you, Johnny? <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting hearing that angle on Greenwood because at the same time, York was stripping everything back, even though he wanted to do electronica stuff. The the thing that really started to clear his writing block, and he did have a massive writing block at that time, like from not knowing what he wanted to write, having all these ideas of where he wanted to go, but also not being able to express them. The moment that cleared it is he bought a piano for his house. One of the main interviews that I read around this was a Rolling Stones interview from 2000, which was basically the only interview that they did with American media at that time. And he talked about how writing everything in its right place was the thing that really opened up Kid A and and being able to get into that mindset for him. He says, I bought a piano for my house, a proper nice one, a baby grand. And that was the first thing I wrote on it. And I'm such a shit piano player. I remember this Tom Waits quote from years ago that what keeps him going as a strong songwriter is his complete ignorance of the instruments he's using. So everything's a novelty. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get into computers and synths because I didn't understand how the fuck they worked. I had no idea what ADSR meant. So ADSR, for those who don't know, is attack, decay, sustain and release, which is a lot of what creates a lot of the more out there spacey noises on Kid A and, and in electronic music generally, right? That's a, that's a big part of being able to write that kind of music in an effective way. And so for a few months, all he was really doing was sitting down at this piano, trying to learn to play it, messing around with it, walking out to the cliffs by his home with a sketchbook. And, and that was it. And, and that was the thing that, got this started was he brought everything in its right place into the studio godrich didn't particularly like it but they decided to mess around with playing it on a profit five synthesizer and johnny greenwood started messing around with the chaos pad that you mentioned with tom york's vocals and things started to click for what they were trying to do and that sort of became the blueprint for everything they wanted and and suddenly things became clear about how they could actually go ahead and start making the music they wanted to make and be excited by it because that was one of the key things was they'd got very bored with the Benz and OK Computer and that was part of what would have driven a breakup if that had happened at this point. Yeah and what a kind of non-Radiohead Radiohead way to start an album it's it's kind of quiet it's it's keys the the song for them it really is that starting point for I guess everything that's gone since, it's a, a a game changer. And I think it was the kind of alienating start for a lot of people who... Because I think one thing that's really important to mention with this album is there were no singles, there were no pre-releases. There, mm-hmm. This was a an album where they decided to to just wait until the album release, which isn't really a done thing anyway. And for a for a a band who are gonna it's gonna go to number one people are gonna buy it yeah so yeah they're gonna assume people are just gonna go go get it well more than that as well because being typically radiohead they decided that they'd tour the album before releasing the album so people on this tour hadn't ever heard the music and the way that people were getting to hear some of kid a was people basically recording stuff at gigs and sticking it up online and that was with really shitty phone microphones at the time and they'd also been really tight on not allowing any pre-release copies to the media which pissed off the media obviously so you, they could only listen to them in very limited ways so i think you even had to go and listen to them you didn't get sent a copy if you wanted to be able to produce a review on this stuff when it happened and yeah, critical reception is something we should really talk about because, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, this was very polarizing on release. So 
a lot of the critics in the mainstream media outlets were pretty underwhelmed. The Guardian gave it two out of five. Melody Maker gave it one and a half out of five and described it as, and I quote, tubby, ostentatious, self-congratulatory, look, Mar, I can suck my own cock, whiny old rubbish. About 60 <laughs> songs were started and no one had a bloody clue how to finish. Uncut described Kid A as a lengthy, overanalyzed mistake. And Enemy gave it a sort of mediocre seven out of 10. The one that was a really key review almost more for the outlet than for kid a itself was pitchfork who gave it 10 out of 10 on release really yep well that's kind of pitchforky in, in, in a nutshell isn't it yeah they described it as an emotional psychological experience it sounds like a clouded brain trying to recall an alien abduction it's the sound of a band and its leader losing faith in themselves destroying themselves and subsequently rebuilding a perfect entity in other words radiohead hated being radiohead but ended up with the most ideal natural radiohead record yet wow that's um quite kind of opposite to to mojo who said kid a is just awful <laughs> <laughs> so, and and i don't know it's uh i think you're right in that it still does polarize people um now i, I think a lot more people get it for what it is now and understand how it came about but um it's a very different way to open an album and um not something that i was expecting yeah same here so we should talk about everything in its right place because we've talked about the creation of the track but the track itself is wonderful and strange it opens with the hypnotic keyboard and fractured digitized and corrupted vocal which which is really iconic and I love the purity of his main vocal against the rest of that sort of jittery electronic landscape. I made a note, there's not a guitar to be seen, this isn't OK Computer or the Benz anymore, which was definitely how a lot of people, as we say, have felt about this. Yeah, It's also got an intriguing time signature. So this time signature is a 10-4 time signature, which, I mean, I'm not... That? My musical theory is very definitely enthusiastic amateur. I don't know the <laughs> details, but you know this i struggle a lot to stay still at gigs so i'm constantly bouncing up and down to whatever rhythm or time signature is going on and anything that throws me off gets me interested in what's the time signature going on here i start counting along in my head so anyone who thinks that they're going to get a record with lots of four four time signatures and the rhythms to go along with that is already confused yeah the, the time signature is weird. The the vocals as well do mm -hmm. all sorts of strange stuff, which you, we've never heard on a Radiohead album. So um mentioned that the chaos pad and there's some kind of, there's some discussion on Radiohead fan boards about whether everything in its right place was recorded using one or whether that was done on the soundboard in the studio, but definitely live. You can see a lot of videos with, with, Johnny Greenwood using a chaos pad. Um, it's kind of weird. If if you don't know what it is, it's a it's a big old square with some extra funky stuff around the edges. Um, in fact, Matt Bellamy has them built into his guitars. So if you've ever seen Matt Bellamy doing some wacky guitar solos and making his guitar do some weird stuff, you can probably see him manipulating the chaos pad. This square is a kind of tactile interface. It's it's an input, so you can take the the guitar's output. It goes through the chaos pad and you can change, you can loop, you can take samples, you can manipulate that sound as it's produced. And so a lot of the songs that you'll see um, Radiohead perform, they'll put Tom York's vocals through this thing and Greenwood will take his vocals and piss around with them, <laughs> which is quite cool. It's mad and particularly doing that live just is is very ambitious. Yeah, well, you, you've got to have two people who who get each other enough to say, I'm going to be singing this song and you're going to be changing the output. It, it mm -hmm. just, it, it's, it's quite a, a leap forward. And they've done that in song one. It took me forever to realise that the lyric on there is yesterday I woke up sucking a lemon because it's so screwed around with and messed around with that it's almost, it's almost irrelevant what the, what the lyric is. It's more the, the feeling that you get from York. And it, it apparently is a reference to how he felt through the later parts of touring OK Computer. Well, I didn't know that lyric until today. So um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> because that's it's so me. screwed around with. Yeah. Yeah. The next one, you go straight from that and you're into Kid A, which is 
glitchy, it's paranoid sounding, it's distorted, almost spoken word vocals, and there's a lot of almost ambience in this rather than what you'd expect from any kind of rock, even more prog rocky stuff. This is the point where, on first listen, it was kind of going in the bin for a lot of people. It's so out there. It's so not what you're used to with Radiohead. And and I'm pretty sure that the actual Kid A track, once people had gone past, if you bought the CD, you played the first track, you're onto the second thinking, come on, where's my where's my karma police? It's not there. It's not gonna it's not gonna appear. And yeah, it, you can see at that point that this album is going off in a wacky old direction. Yep. But the next track, the national anthem, we get guitar. I mean it's a bass, but it's a guitar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well one of the one of the greatest radiohead bass lines they've ever made, I think. Yep. This is all Colin Greenwood pushing the track along. It's much more urgent than the first two tracks but it's still got this paranoia around it and i love the hard digital edge that you have to tom york's vocals here it's, it's almost like it's compressed on both edges but too harshly through whatever they're doing to it and you have this everyone everyone is so near everyone has got the fear it's holding on like deeply paranoid weird fucked up lyrics going on here it's great yeah and this is the first appearance of, of Johnny's on Martino where you kind of hear it go, Wah! and and that sound just adds to the kind of the, the weirdness of it. I genuinely thought that was a theremin. Yeah, well, they're so they're so close. Well, so interestingly, total geek facts. So Maurice Martino, who invented this thing, and also Leon Theremin, who invented the theremin, they both worked as um, radio operators in the First World War. And ah. if you watch all those old war movies, when they're playing with radios and you hear them kind of go, Wow and they, they're making noises, they're trying to tune in a frequency, they must have both... Um, well, that's how the sound's made. It's, a, it's an oscillation in a vacuum tube, which creates this weirdness. And so these two guys must have both been tuning in their frequencies and going, hang on, this is a kind of cool thing. And that's what they, they've used. Um, and the cool thing about the On Martineau is that Johnny Greenwood's a bit of a a hero um, for that musical world because so Maurice Martineau died in a car crash. We're going way off base now, but I'm just going to carry on. He, he died in a car wreck. Um, so no one really was around to champion it. And it kind of was used in sheds and a few kind of classical mm. pieces of music. Greenwood's picked this up and he's now become a kind of hero because around the world, there are little on Martineau kind of clubs and, uh, and builders who are, working off the back of his work and he's buying these things and he's writing orchestral pieces for them and he's almost a one-man army in setting this instrument back to back to life so yeah good on you johnny nice that's awesome the other thing i want to get into here as well is the jazz brass instruments yeah that all start pretty straightforwardly with just i think it's a trumpet or maybe a trombone that kicks in first but then it swirls into this massive chaos and crescendo with Tom York just screaming. It's holding on over the top of it and almost buried under it as well. It's, it's good. Brilliant. And I think this is probably a, a good point to, to mention the sound on this album as a whole. Don't listen to this album on a crappy pair of £20 useless headphones kind of on a bus where there's that other noise floating around. You won't really appreciate it that well there's so much depth in this album and there, there's so much detail just find a very good hi-fi or a some way of getting this music properly into your heads because that brass that you that kicks in and the other sounds they're all you need to really listen to them yeah it's amazing and i love the willingness to fuck up the purity of the sound where they need to but also hold the purity of the sound where it's right as well exactly we have to talk about how to disappear completely because i fucking love this track well you just mentioned purity of sound i'm gonna go all the way to the end at the start and say that the end of this track is one of the finest musical finishes because of the way that they use sound and the way that it you go from 
confused and complex sounds to pure sounds. It's a masterstroke and I love it. And I'm sorry that I've finished talking about the song before we even started, but I had to just say it. <laughs> You've also stolen my point because I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> There's two discordant parts towards the end of this that both are brilliantly swirling and chaotic and then resolve into a more positive key. And that release at that moment, emotionally and musically, is unbelievably good. You said it's brilliant. I've said, I think it's probably one of the finest pieces of music they've ever produced. Yeah, I I, I feel sorry for stealing that now, but... Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. Uh, I'm just glad that you agree with me. I, I have also compared it to uh, the Beatles' A Day in the Life, which is my favourite Beatles track, and it has that same discordant, crazy, chaotic build that then drops into something more positive and resolves. Yeah. Well, now that you've stolen my ending, I'm going to start <laughs> at the beginning. Yes. Uh, the, the quiet acoustic guitars with the haunting strings and Tom York's vocals over the top of this is just a brilliant intro to this track. And I love, I talked about the fact that they mess with stuff when they do and, and at times they don't. The vocals in here are a key for me that they're kept perfectly pristine and pure. And the bass in here is really underrated. Yeah, it's quite subtle, isn't it? Yeah, really subtle, but it's beautifully holds things together and the way all those main elements play off each other is just magnificent as well the the elongated single note from the strings right from very early on when they first kick in holds all the way through the first verse until they get to i walk through the walls i float down the liffy and then you get this swoop of strings that comes in and accents that mood of of york's despondency in the in the vocals it's incredible it's another slower song though it's it's not Mm -hmm. that kind of you know we've we're four songs into an album and we yet to hear anything really kind of try to knock your socks off yeah but it does in a very very quiet understated way this song can make me cry if i'm in the right mood for it and it's incredibly powerful in a very very understated way yeah the the way the song ends it's a bit like if you've watched jaws and when the camera zooms in pans out i can't remember it, it it's the one moves in the opposite direction to the other i think they're moving the camera forward to what's his name roy snyder's face so they're they're moving the camera toward his face and they're coming back with the the camera lens and it focuses right in on his face and you see him looking out to see watching someone get munched and that kind of weird focus is exactly what happens at the end of this song it's it's really clever Absolutely. So Tom York talks about this uh, and he says the song is about the whole of the period of time that OK Computer was happening. We did the Glastonbury Festival and this thing in Ireland. Something snapped in me. I just said, that's it. I can't take it anymore. And more than a year later, we were still on the road. I hadn't had time to address things. The lyrics came from something Michael Stipe said to me. I rang him and said, I cannot cope with this. And he said, pull the shutters down and keep saying, I'm not here. This isn't happening. Oh, wow. It's a... But that's quite cool because we briefly mentioned REM being a massive influence on them and I think Radiohead were huge fans. So to go from being huge fans to having Stipe's phone number in your in your back pocket if you want to chat <laughs> is quite cool. Yeah. Well, you, you can tell from that advice he's been through the same issues. True. You talked about um, Greenwood and arranging strings for orchestral stuff over the last decade. Apparently he did the strings on this and it was completely just his thing goodrich helped him and that was it the rest of them weren't involved in it at all yeah and i guess when you're when you've just dismantled all of the um i guess the the framework that your band used to work on then yeah a band member can just do his own thing and you know uh, and create something totally different well i think it also shows that there's an element of trust that's come back in there yeah. once they've got to that point of, you know, they've, they're all scattered so far away from what they want to then come back together and be willing to be like, okay, cool. Johnny's got this. We're good. Yeah. Is sort of cool. I think I, it definitely feels like a, a seminal moment for the, for the band, this particular, I mean, it is a seminal moment. I, there's no argument there. It is absolutely one of the most important moments of their career as a band. 
yeah, I think you can absolutely say that from this point onwards, the that style of working has just continued because it just works for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. We can't do a song by song. We need to jump ahead. Yep. Let's get it, Idiotech. Yeah. This is lyrically all about York's vision of a society riddled with people who are more obsessed with pointless technologies, selfishness, and mindless entertainment than life itself. And Facebook hadn't even been invented at this point. Yeah. I don't know. For me, it, it's not so much the um, uh, the kind of the lyrics, but it's just the the sound of this, especially live. The, the way that Idiotech kicks in, it's a bit of a staple of their live set. Yep. Just because it's that other card in the back pocket, which is if you want people to dance around and just kind of let it out, this is the track to do it on. And it's funny you should say that because I love listening to these these tracks and i i think a lot of people think of them as being darren cold and electronic and boring but i dance around my my living room to this track that electronic drum loop with all the electronic glitches make it sound cold and robotic but it's got something to it there's life there yeah so so tom york's quoted as saying um he, he wanted to capture the exploding beat sound when you're at a club and the pa is so loud you don't know it's doing damage and that's exactly how it sounds. It kind of sticks in your head. Well, the the snare on this has been fed through something and there's so much white noise around it that it almost is actually broken. Yeah. Like if you recorded this and you were just trying to get a pure snare sound, you'd be like, oh, we've turned everything up too much and we need to re-record it. But that's clearly what they were actually trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great track. This is also one that they've struggled with live. So... In the States in 2012, May, June, they were playing this and Johnny had a malfunctioning, I think it was the modular synth. I'm not entirely sure. I did find this a while ago and then lost it when I was trying to actually do the research. But apparently it was failing to keep time properly and it had done this a number of nights in a row and Tom on the second or third time just went, fuck's sake, and stormed off stage, came back after a couple of minutes and we're like really sorry shouldn't have done that blah 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 played played more music but so i mean i'm guessing multiple times in a row you start to get really angry with it and they've since fixed it and sorted that out but yeah definitely an issue there with trying to do something that complex live it's a good point because back in 97 when they played glastonbury and basically played okay computer for the first time i didn't mention this in the last podcast actually but their sound was malfunctioning. So I think everything that was coming in through their ears was either wrong or off or it just wasn't working. And they'd been quoted as saying all of them were just like, we could just pack this in. We've had enough. And they were getting really cross and it didn't come across at all on stage. We were watching them, but I guess it's such a big deal for them. And they, and even when they headlined Glastonbury, what, a few years ago, the whole band said they were absolutely petrified of going up on stage. It's, it's a massive deal for them. They, you feel like some performers can have a few beers, go, up, go on stage, and if it's a total car crash, then whatever. But these guys really want to make a special experience. Yeah, they're absolute perfectionists, and that is whether they're recording or whether they're live. i got one more to finish off this album, but I do want to talk about a couple of tracks on Amnesiac because that's effectively just an extension of Kid A. Morning Bell. I, I love this for the drum pattern and I love the 5-4 time signature. It took me ages to work out what the bloody hell was going on, but I love that now. Yeah, Radiohead and their time signatures, uh, it's tricky. You need to invest time to get these songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amnesiac as well has a load of songs which do that, which, which I'm sure you'll come on to. Well, we should jump to Pyramid Song because I'm sure that's probably one of the best examples of that, that right? That was the one I was going to. Pyramid Song <laughs> is that absolutely perfect example of a of, of a time signature where you, you can't quite work it out all right tell me what do you think the time signature is for pyramid song if you had to guess god knows so there's a three it's bump 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 ah uh, eight no i don't know it's well there's there's a three in there or a six it's a four four time signature Oh, piss off. <laughs> it's not. It's 4-4 four, four time signature. Okay. So no, it's not. What I will say is there's a huge amount of arguments in Radiohead forums about what the time signature is here. No, it's not 4-4. Four, four. I'm listening to it at the moment. It's definitely not. A, a different instruments playing at different times. 
it's polyrhythmic, but the time signature is a 4-4 time signature. So the, the, this is the weird thing with this track is there's a lot going on, but it's all layered on top of a 4-4 time signature. So professional musicians have weighed in on this and what they've said is it's technically 4-4, but rhythmically the, the drums are in a bar of 7-4 and a bar of 9-4, which effectively is 16-4, which means four bars of 4-4. Four, four. So it's rhythmically all over the place, but it's still just a four-four time signature. Ah, there we go. Se- seven, <laughs> seven, four. That's it. Because seven minus four is three, and that's where I was getting my three from. Yeah, clearly I knew what I was talking about. Yeah, someone I think split it up as a four-four, three-four, five-four, four-four. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's just bonkers. But this is a track that took me ages and about twenty listens before I could work out where the actual rhythm was because the piano rhythm makes you think it's one thing and then you get about a minute and a half into the song and the drums come in and you're like "Uh, but I was tapping my feet to a completely different rhythm what the hell's going on they do a very similar trick with videotape which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in the future where the rhythm that the band is playing is syncopated and throws you off because they're doing several different things with several different instruments that all weave together beautifully once you know what the song is but yeah it's hard to figure out the first few times yeah and amnesiac as a whole continues this theme i mean we've mentioned it already that it was recorded kind of in the same sessions they they had about what 30 odd songs and they tried to kind of split them out because these albums only came out about eight months apart or so well that was that was a thing as well was they didn't really know what they were going to do with this and what they decided was once they got the Kid A album sorted I mean initially there were suggestions that they would do a double album and that very quickly the band decided that was a bad idea and they didn't want to do it Tom York thought they might take the material that they ended up putting into Amnesiac and release several EPs where they Mm. would have a thematic thing for each ep and release them that way but they ended up deciding that amnesiac as an album was probably the way to do it yeah i think there's some great stuff on here i don't think it's as uh, i don't think it's as complete in terms of a vision as kid a is because obviously they worked out which tracks they wanted for kid a and this is leftover stuff um this is my favorite track on the whole thing pyramid song along with I Might Be Wrong, wrong. (laughs) which is where our name comes from. Yeah. I love I Might Be Wrong. The guitar and drums in the intro to this are just fucking brilliant. They just bounce along. There's that hazy synthy thing going on. And the bass in this is sneaky awesome as well. It's just funky and slinky. Yeah. All of you good listeners, switch off I Might Be Wrong the podcast. (laughs) Put on I Might Be Wrong the song. Come back to us in a few minutes. Yes. It's better than we are. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that goes without saying. Um, I just I want to shout out for um, Yoon Hoo's Army partly because it was a little bit like a return to some of their earlier Radiohead stuff, but also for Maurice Martineau and his Ons Martineau gets another mention. Okay, but only because they put Tom York's voice through the speakers of the Ons Martineau, uh, which is why you get this kind of weird, slightly muffled strange sound he's he's going through the the ond so uh, nice cool cool song that's cool dollars and cents is the other one that i probably want to give an honorable mention to because it's more chaotic craziness it's very jazz inspired particularly the drumming yeah so yeah two very interesting albums but yeah kid a stands out as being that one that uh caused a lot of contention at the time i guess we should talk about these specific albums and how they are live because both of us have seen them play a lot of this music live and we talked about this a bit before we jumped on to record and you said the same thing so I'm going to steal your point since you stole mine uh this stuff is much more alive when it's played live if that makes sense it's less cold and calculated and and much more frenetic and chaotic and and it sounds like a lot of it is quite dancey like you can jump around to this stuff when you hear it live i think the first time i got the songs on kid a and amnesiac was actually when we went to see them in hammersmith in the apollo when they were doing the in rainbows tour yeah yeah and they started playing some stuff off this and it clicked and i was just thinking 
hang on a second I've just totally dismissed this <laughs> and I really shouldn't have done it is you get it and and if you watch the band and we'll come on to there's there's a load of other stuff um from that tour which we need to talk about at a later stage mm-hmm. but if you watch them actually on any live performance go, go on to youtube and watch the way that they they all start moving around and getting into the music and it's almost like watching them getting into the music you kind of start getting into it yourself but yeah it's a bit tough to say go and watch radiohead go and see them live and then you'll all understand the music <laughs> because um, <laughs> their tickets are like gold dust but some of their live performances are, are cracking you can find them on the internet they did a load of live performances during lockdown one, which you can go and have a watch. And that sort of gives you some of that live feel. Definitely helps understand what they're seeing in the music more. Yeah. For sure. You've said this was the first time you really understood some of those tracks. You were already a Radiohead fan when this came out. How did you feel when you first listened to Kid A? I thought it was shit. <laughs> genuinely i thought it was a heap of shit thought it was pretentious and i was a little bit sad as well because i loved the old radiohead and i was kind of wedded to that sound and so when you could see that their future was going off in another direction and to be honest i think they were way ahead of me (laughs) um and i just didn't understand what they were doing right what about you did you did you start to because i think you appreciated it at the time more than i did or did you not? Yes, but. So we've talked about the listening stations in our price and the like before on, on this podcast. This came out in October of 2000. And at that time, I'd finished school and was winding up towards doing, or I'd just started doing my year in industry gap year so just going out and working and I remember going into High Wycombe and going to the R price there and listening to this and just being like (laughs) what 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 the hell what is this and I remember going in two three four weeks in a row and Sticking it back on again, having another listen. Sticking it back on again, having another listen. Listening to other albums to cleanse my palate. Coming back and having another listen. I reckon I finally got some of it to click on the 10th listen. I was like, oh, there's there's something here. There's something here that I think I can enjoy. And I'll tell you what, we talk about things that albums teach us and inspirations they lead us to. This album taught me to have patience with something and to understand and listen for certain things that give you hints that an album's worth pursuing and worth continuing to listen to, even when you're not immediately sure whether it's worth it. That's a brilliant point. It's it's spot on, actually. And the way I looked at it is a kind of like a barrier to entry. It's it's a bit like do you want to pay 100 quid to go into a really exclusive nightclub? No, no, fuck off. I'm going down the boozer and I'll just go into a, <laughs> a, order a, a normal pint. But if you put that money in or the time in to listen to something like this, you will get rewarded. Yep. But I just, I I think with this album, if someone said put Kid A on, I'd still have to go, Whoa. I wouldn't just chuck it on when I get home from work. It's not that kind of an album. You have to go, I, want to, I need to listen to Kid A. I have a memory of a point during that year of, working where I'd met new friends through the year in industry scheme and being at a friend's house party and putting on how to disappear completely and just being like it's amazing this is amazing I love it so much it's so good the the strings on this are incredible blah 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 and just everyone there just slowly just turning to me and being like what are you on this is fucking awful like it's really depressing (laughs) why have you put this music on there's only about 10 of us there it's like a good bunch of mates but they were all like What's wrong with you? Why do you like this? Yeah. And I still think, uh, I'm going to be honest, it's really not in my top top three Radiohead albums, top four. I still think this one, for me, is one of the harder ones to get into. I think it's maybe because they're evolving the sound. And I think that in later albums, they've maybe it's just that you know what you're going to get a bit more now. And maybe it's as simple as that, where you know you pick up in rainbows and you kind of 
know what's going to be coming down your speakers whereas this there's an expectation that it's going to be weird and pretentious and a bit all over the place and i wasn't prepared for this and i was thrown big time yeah that's fair it's not the top of my list i definitely have two other albums okay computer and in rainbows that i would always list above it i think beyond those two it can be number three it just depends on my mood. Yeah, I was say, let, let, let's not start ranking the radio albums, otherwise there'll be there'll be letters, and there'll be lots of people telling us we're wrong, and we'll be here all evening trying to work out which order is correct. But for me, this is an album that I have to be in a very specific mood to listen to, and if I'm in that mood, it's the perfect album. Yeah, I get really pissed off when I see Hell to the Thief way down of the kind of the, the Radiohead rankings. But anyway, this is one for another time. <laughs> we we will have to come back to some other maybe we'll just do a radiohead album every nine months yeah i think i think we need to but yeah this one whatever your views on it i think you need to know about it just because of how it's changed it changed radiohead but it also changed a lot of other bands as well i think uh, in terms of influence a lot of artists realized that not that guitar music was dead but there were bands like radiohead ripping up the rule book and really changing the direction of music. And, you know, if you're a, a record label executive, you've suddenly got a band who are doing all sorts of weird electronic stuff who are at number one in all the charts. And they're thinking, wait a second, we can't just go and find another four-piece guitar band and dress them up and put them on the cover of NME and they'll sell all the records because Radiohead is just changing the game. Yeah, you sort of allude to this. They were pioneers in breaking down traditional indie versus electronica versus dance music versus whatever else genre walls and just being like we don't care about that stuff we're just going to do whatever we want and that opened up a lot of the ability for other people to also see that they could do that it's a brilliant point actually because it was the genre bucketing which Mm -hmm. 20 years ago you would like a certain style of music it's like, I like electronica, I like rock, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And nowadays, so many bands cross over that it's it's very difficult to say nowadays what kind of music you like. You kind of go, uh, indie, but that's gone. I mean, what is indie? The, the lines are very blurred now. Yeah, and I love that. Like That works for my tastes, personally. And I think there are still those bands in those traditional buckets. It's just that bands don't need to feel constrained if they don't want to be. Yeah which is great for both the performer and the consumer of the music. Yep, absolutely. Cool. We should probably call it on that because we've been going a while. Sorry, folks. Yes. We had fun. I hope you're still with us. <laughs> Who knows? Doesn't doesn't really matter. That was a that was good and I think more really had to come. Absolutely. And if you are on social media, we're at I might be wrong UK. Tell us what you think about Kid A. Are we are we wrong? Is it actually just a pile of nonsense? Let us know. All right. Thanks, Henry. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.